Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 201. Today on our show, author Peter Bronson discusses the Beverly Hills Supper Club. But I do have extensive uh, interviews with people who were there, people who worked in the club before the fire, and they witnessed people that showed up in the club before the fire and were intimidating. They had a conversation, they overheard a conversation with the shillings, in which these guys basically said, uh, sell us the club or it might you might not have the club. Peter was a journalist for years and years, mostly for the Cincinnati Enquirer. You probably remember reading his stuff. And he's written several books, the latest of which, Forbidden Fruit, Sin City's Underworld, and The Supper Club, details the history and tragic end of the Beverly Hills Supper Club. We hear about how Peter arrived in Cincinnati, his newspaper work. Then he talks about the mob in Newport and, of course, the Supper Club and what he thinks really happened. Now, if you've been liking the show, you can support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Peter Bronson about the Beverly Hills Supper Club and the mob in Newport. Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Cincinnati. She came down Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. Yeah, Peter, I think we've probably run into each other somewhere along the ways. So I used to write for City Beat. Well, I still do every now and then. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we know some people together then. Uh, you know Ben Kaufman at all? I don't know Ben. Um, I've worked most John Fox over Cincinnati yeah, Magazine on Foxy, John. and uh, well, she didn't work for City Brand, but uh, Linda Vassarello got me my start. Uh, she got me some gigs at Cincinnati Magazine, so I know her. I know her ex oh, Rick really? Pender, and yeah, yeah, all kinds of folks. It's a small town in a way, and in a way, it's not. Yeah, it is, <laughs> especially yeah. in that circle. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it's interesting the the folks you run into and the fo- I didn't realize Rick and Linda were married until he uh and who was on the I don't even know who told me that I'm I'm like oh Michelle Giblin mentioned that that they were I'm like I didn't realize those guys were married yeah yeah so I think Rick Pender let me double check I think his one of his books might be referenced in my book oh yeah he was he's been on the show no I'm thinking of Dan Pinger sorry. Haven't had Dan on. I know. I know Dan to probably say hello to because uh, Rick used to work for him. But anyway, I digress. Um, so, like I said in the email, uh, you know, we like stories both on subject and to do with you and your connection to Cincinnati. So, as I always like to say, it's better to talk too much than too little. So, okay, don't be afraid of rambling on because we rather hear okay. more than hear less. Well, I, I asked one lady about Columbia Tusculum, and I said it's the oldest neighborhood in Cincinnati, right? And she said, "Yes." And that's all she said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. As a longtime news fan, uh, the worst interview is people that just come at you with the yes and no. Exactly. Yeah, they don't extrapolate. Well, I learned Stephen Colbert uh, said, he taught this to Steve Carell when they were on The Daily Show. He said, just pause. If Just wait for an answer because eventually people will say something. And boy, it's hard to do, Absolutely. but I've tried to do that. And eventually, yeah. Silence people, is your friend. Yeah, yeah. Ex- yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, well... People know the name Peter Bronson, obviously, if you've lived in Cincinnati for, for any time, but I, maybe they don't know. Are you from Cincinnati originally? No, I'm not. I uh, was born in Michigan in Ann Arbor, grew up in East Lansing, worked in Arizona for about 10 years, and then moved to Cincinnati. Aha. How did you wind up here? Um, I was working as editorial page editor at the Tucson Citizen, which was a Gannett paper, and when, the, when Cincinnati, the Enquirer, hired a new publisher for Cincinnati, uh, which was a Gannett paper, they, uh, the publisher was working with me in Tucson, and he decided to hire me, and I came to Cincinnati. So what was your first gig here with, in, with the paper? Uh, I was working at the uh, Enquirer. I came as editorial page editor, associate editor in charge of opinion pages, and uh, the editorial page. 
Okay. Well, of course, the reason we've asked you here today is because uh, you've written a book about a topic that uh, turns out Darren and I are both fascinated by, uh, the Beverly Hills Supper Club, and related to that, of course, uh, the Newport mob, and which I didn't even know until I read the little blurb about the book related to the Cleveland mob. I'm from Cleveland, so I know a lot about that. Uh, so yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a, a fascinating tale. Uh, I had no idea there was such a deep uh, connection to the Cleveland mob and or that there was any kind of mob connection to the Beverly Hills Supper Club. I thought that was kind of a separate Newport thing. Well, as a matter of fact, I was pretty surprised, too. I came here in 92, and one of the first stories I heard about in the newsroom was the Supper Club fire because people in a newsroom always have their legends and myths and greatest stories list. And that topped the, the list of greatest stories in our region. I think it still does. I can't think of anything that would... Uh, superseded after all uh, 165 people lost their lives there is uh as i found out again uh and there is hardly anybody in cincinnati who wasn't touched by that fire somehow any group of uh, 20 people about five or six of them will, will tell you they their parents were there they were there they were there the night before they knew somebody a neighbor whose family was there it, you just cannot um, walk in any group of people who grew up in Cincinnati that doesn't remember that and also remember exactly where they were when they heard about it. So it is the big story in our region, and I was fascinated by it. I decided uh, to do my own research and uh, because I'd often heard stories that the fire was not an accident, which adds this extra element, as you know, of being a cold case, of being a mystery, of something that uh, nobody is sure about. So I said, well, you know, I think I'll, dig, I'll dive into that, and I think it's a fantastic story. Uh, and uh, that led me down the path uh, all the way back to 1936, where the story begins. Wow. So, Darren, how did wow. you get interested in it? Well, I mean, I, I did not grow up here in Cincinnati. It's one of those things that you always kind of, you know, hear about. Um, but I... I I don't know. I think that's because there is so many unknowns um, than there are knowns. There, I, I, I don't know. It's one of those things that uh, I guess I've always been interested in hearing hearing what the story was. Like I, I, I guess I heard that uh, Jeff Ruby was there that night. Like he was a a, a busser or something like that. Well, as a like matter I, of fact, he was in the restaurant business at the time, and he was a great admirer of the Schilling family because the Beverly Hills Supper Club was far none the finest place in the Midwest. If you wanted a special occasion, anything, best entertainment, best presentation, best food, best everything. So this was the, the destination location for everybody. And Jeff Ruby, as it turns out, knew the Schillings. He was working in the restaurant business at the time, and uh, as a, because they were friends, he got front row center seats for that uh, performance that night by John Davidson and took his date and his friend, uh, they double dated. And uh, his, his story is contained in my book as well. It's uh, fascinating. Yeah, I, That's awesome. I'm like you, and I, uh, Darren, when I moved here, I kind of heard about it. And I can't remember if it was the Inquirer or the Post shortly after I moved here must have been the Inquirer because it was a Sunday feature, I think, but did a big uh, uh, spread on the fire. Um, must have been an it must have been an anniversary, maybe '97, because it happened in '77. Yeah. And I was very uh, intrigued by it. And to this day, if a fire alarm goes off in a building, even if I'm sure it's a false alarm, I leave. <laughs> I kid you not. I'm Good for you. 100% serious. And my daughters are the same way. I say, "Yep, the fire alarm's going off. It's probably it's probably nothing. Nope, leave." And uh, to your point about people uh, being touched by it, I used to work at the airport, and I had some older ladies who worked for me in some of the gift shops. And the one uh, waited on John Davidson the next day when he flew out, and everyone was scared to say anything to him because they didn't want to say the wrong thing. So everyone was very quiet and very somber. As he bought like a newspaper or something, maybe a snack, and he got on the plane there, and and uh, and that was it. So yeah, you're right. Every if, and if you lived here at the time, then yeah, you know somebody that 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 affected. You just have to bring up the topic. Um, I've been uh, out and about doing speaking and so forth uh, since I've been since I wrote the book, and the stories that I've heard are just amazing. I wish I'd talked to all these people before I published, but huh. you have to cut it off somewhere. So I've heard some amazing stories since then too. So what? How does the story start? Where, where does the, the, the supper club come from? Is the mob involved from the beginning? Do they come in later? 
Well, it, it kind of you can choose your spot where you start this story. It's such a great story. It's almost I've heard from so many people who say, I know this is all true, but I can't believe this really happened in Cincinnati. It did. So in 1936, there was a guy named Pete Schmidt, and he was actually a driver and a gangster who worked with George Remus. If you remember who he oh, is, yeah. he was yeah, yeah. the bootlegger king of the whole nation. The king of bootleggers was in Cincinnati. But what a lot of people don't know, most of his operations in warehouses were in northern Kentucky, which he chose because it was so much easier to buy up politicians and the police. So he had... Uh, wired the corruption throughout northern Kentucky so nobody would bother him. And when he went to prison on his tax charges and so forth, uh, Pete Schmidt and the rest of his gang went down with him. But when they got out of prison, they came right back to northern Kentucky in Newport and Covington and opened casinos because they knew uh, the, the fix was already in. They didn't have to buy anybody. And if they did, it was much less expensive to buy the people you needed in northern Kentucky than it was in Cincinnati. Ah. So uh, geographically, it was located just fine for bootlegging. And they also had access to bootleg booze from their, their own uh, connections. So Pete Schmidt opened what was the classiest joint, a carpet joint, compared to the bus stop joints. We can get into that later if you like. But the, the, the classiest joint uh, was Pete Schmidt's Beverly Hills Country Club. And that's what it was known by at the time. He fixed it up. It was beautiful. And it was so beautiful that it attracted the attention of the Cleveland Four Mob. And Mo Dallitz, who was the uh, big boss, the kingpin of the Cleveland Four Mob, who'd gotten a start with the Purple Gang in Detroit and was big time into bootlegging. The Cleveland Four Mob had the franchise through mobs all over the country when, the, when all of the mobs met in the 1920s in Atlantic City. They divided up the territory. The Cleveland Four Mob got uh, Ohio, Michigan, and Kentucky. So when uh, Mo Dallas came down and saw the Beverly Hills, he said he had to have it. It was just so pretty. It was perfect for his bootlegging operations. And uh, he off made an offer to Pete Schmidt, the kind of offer you're not supposed to refuse. <laughs> and Pete Schmidt refused. So uh, Mo Dallas hired some guys. Um, who uh, went out there late at night and set the place on fire. That was the first fire at the Beverly Hills. And I was surprised my research turned up not one, not two, but actually three fires. And all of them were seriously mob connected. So this first one, uh, they were, they tried it late at night because they figured the place would be empty but a caretaker was there with his girlfriend and her sister. The sister was five years old and she was uh, seriously burned and killed in the fire. And that was the first fatality. So after that, the, the war between Pete Schmidt and the Cleveland Four mob continued. They resorted to uh, theft. They, they uh, pulled people over who were delivering his uh, take to the bank uh, with Thompson machine guns pulled them over on the road, took all their money. Uh, they did a thing called ding-dong, which was where uh, three or four gangsters would go into the lobby. Remember, this is a very plush place with fantastic carpets and beautiful flocked wallpaper, first class all the way. They would go into the lobby and unzip and empty their bladders all over the carpets. And that was another way to send a signal to Pete Schmidt. You, you better sell them all because most serious. So eventually... Pete sold to Mo Dallas, and the Cleveland Four mob took over the Beverly Hills. Now, if we fast forward, I'm getting ahead, but it's a little bit of a, a foreshadowing. But later on, Mo Dallas, who was a really uh, nasty gangster, but very smooth and, and charming when he wanted to be, he once said that everything he needed to know to open up the casinos in Las Vegas, he learned at the Beverly Hills. What's a little interesting tie in there, again, getting ahead of ourselves, one of the reporters that covered the Supper Club fire in 77 became the gossip columnist for the Las Vegas Review Journal. I can't remember the fellow's name. Um, I used to read his stuff all the time when I was out there. But uh, Is that right? I didn't know that. That's a neat connection. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember his name. Um, I'll, I'll look it up while you continue the story. So what year are we talking here when he finally buys it, when the, 
when they included it would have been close to 1940 about 1939 um the cleveland mob took over the club uh they ran it then all the way up to the 60s and then in fact maintained a, a ownership interest and it's murky because they they hid their ownership of these casinos behind many different fronts and names but uh, they maintained an interest all the way up through the 60s so um while the club was being run by the mob, they went in seriously to Newport and Covington and took over all the other clubs too. So their guys, another place was the Lookout House. And that was run by another associate of George Remus and Pete Schmidt, who was from the old Remus gang. In fact, most of the early casinos were all run by the Remus gang. And this guy was also forced to sell out to the Cleveland mob. So like dominoes, all the casinos and the nice carpet joints began to fall. And pretty soon the Cleveland mob was running them all. But they had a kind of a, uh, an agreement. So they had the Levinson brothers from uh, Chicago sleep out Louis Levinson. They had Meyer Lansky from New York was involved in ownership of some of the casinos. They had kind of a, a little Switzerland going there in Newport. So different mob bosses could come in and get a piece of the action. So it, but what happened is is Newport became the national hub for what they called wire betting, which was where you could place bets on horses and boxing matches and everything else. Anything that Vegas would bet on today was right there headquartered in Newport. And it was worth millions and millions of dollars worth of Newport during those days. Hmm. So Sleep Out Louie, he, they later named a bar after him downtown. I didn't realize yeah. that was the same guy. <laughs> Oh, wow. How yeah, that's somebody awesome. called me the other day and said, uh, I always thought that was just a bar. I didn't yeah, know there same. was a guy named Sleep Out Louie. Do we have a Sleep Out Louie shirt? I don't know if we do. We do have a Sleep Out Louie shirt. Okay. Oh, great. And a caddy shirt and yes. the, uh, Flanagan's. And yeah, yeah. All that stuff down there. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so what, uh, Bobby Mackey's was also a... Uh, a big mob hangout, right? Was that anything? I mean, I know it's in the you know, Southgate Newport area, but uh, does yeah, do you that know was another one of the clubs going on there. Yeah, that was another one of the clubs that was taken over by the mob. It was started again by another of uh, the Pete Schmidt, uh, George Remus Associates, and there's a legend around Bobby Mackey's about the uh, woman who was killed and beheaded. And that her head was supposedly um, pushed into or thrown into a well because at one time that was a slaughterhouse. And uh, so there's some really interesting history around that too. I give it to some of that in my book. Uh, it's really fascinating. I took a I took a tour. It was a ghost tour, but you know that's that's the only reason anybody goes into the Bobby Mackey's basement. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, uh, they did take you into one room, and there there were blood splatters. Uh, all over the wall, which I don't know if it was from the the slaughterhouse days or the the gangster days, but they said plenty yes. of people were killed in that basement. I'll be dang. Well, I, I haven't done the uh, ghost tour of Northern Kentucky. I did the gangster tour, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I was I would probably be just as much fun or more fun now that I've done all the research because I learned so much about these people. I figured you'd be given the tours. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So was that the- awesome. Was the Beverly Hills always located on the hilltop in Southgate, or did it eventually move there, or is it was that was always located? It, yeah, it was uh, known as the Old Kentuck Club before Pete Schmidt bought it. He named it the Beverly Hills Country Club. Aha! Uh-huh. And then when uh, it was closed in the 1960s, which is another fantastic story, um, we can get into that if you like. Um, yeah. What happened is then Dick Schilling came and it had been boarded up for probably 10 years at least. Hmm. when he bought it and he said he bought it mainly because he said the name alone was worth a million dollars because everybody knew this was the show place of the Midwest and then eventually became known as the show place of the nation. Frank Sinatra performed there. He was a gambler there. Dean Martin got his start there as a dealer and worked with Jerry Lewis and the clubs in Newport to get their start. Uh, Everybody you can name that was big in Hollywood, Ozzy and Harriet, Marilyn Monroe, Everybody that Jimmy Durante, uh, Don Rickles, everybody in the Rat Pack, Sammy Davis, they all performed and came through the Beverly Hills. Wow. That's awesome. 
So he he buys it in the '60s after being bored up for ten years, and does the name get changed then to Supper Club, or is it still the Country Club? And then yeah, he kept the name uh, Beverly Hills and added Supper Club instead of Country Club. And if you look at the pictures of what the the place looked like when the mob was running it up till the '60s, it really did look like a country club. It had the the beautiful uh, kind of southern style portico with pillars and the white doors with, uh, and it really looked like, just like a really high class country club, but then inside you had roulette, blackjack, you had uh, one-armed bandits, you had every kind of gambling you could think of. And, and the, the uh, carpet joints like the Beverly Hills, they were pretty clean. They were, of course, the house got its take and never lost, but they were clean compared to the bus stop joints that were all over Newport too, which were really, those were dangerous. And they call them bust-out joints because if you went in there, you didn't leave until you were busted or until they threw you out. <laughs> and in many cases, uh, they would throw you out after you'd been given some floral hydrate knockout drops so they could lift your wallet and uh, throw you in the gutter and you wake up the next day. Oh, geez. So <laughs> wait, is gambling legal at this point in Kentucky? Or no. no. Okay. No, it was brazenly brazenly ignored and enthusiastically so. At one point, the Kentucky governor said of Newport, he said, they want it dirty, and if they want it, want it dirty, they can have it dirty. Wow. And he, by the way, was also connected to the mob later on. <laughs> so the political corruption was so strong. It was uh, from the beat cops, the sheriff, uh, the uh, local politicians, all the city council people, all the way up to the state senators, the legislature, the governor, judges, uh, prosecutors, everybody was connected and owned by the mob to the, to the point where when the reform sheriff finally came along in 1961, George Ratterman, when he came along, he had to hire his own fresh set of deputies, uh, almost like the untouchables, because he found out that the previous deputies were so corrupt that the, the county board of supervisors only gave them token pay because they said, they're already being paid by the mob. Why should we pay them twice? So um, did the Cleveland mob get out of it? Cause, uh, we're talking the 1960s, and this is about the same time that, while well, you know, the mob is involved in Vegas for a long time into the 80s. It's the, the 60s. It's the start of corporations and rich folks like Howard Hughes having more money than even the mob and taking over these joints. Is that kind of what happens in Newport? Well, Newport uh, is very curious because it was, I liken the research to walking into a um, hallway with a lot of doors, and every time you open a door, you see more doors. So I would uh, do some research, and I'd see another door, and I'd follow that one and follow this one. It was fascinating, and I never expected what I found, but what happened in 1960 is, um, if you know your history, Jack Kennedy... Uh, President John F. Kennedy appointed his brother Bobby as attorney general, which was very controversial. And um, uh, people said he had no experience. And uh, Jack said, well, that's why I appointed him. He needs the experience and he can learn on the job. He was joking, but it, it was no joke to a lot of people. Anyway, Bobby takes office as attorney general with this uh, chip on his shoulder that he has to prove that he can, um, he can be a tough guy. And right about this time, George Ratterman, who was a um, all-star quarterback, uh, all-American guy, fantastic athlete, um, smart, really interesting guy. He was recruited and drafted to run as the reform sheriff so that they could clean up the organized crime in northern Kentucky. Well, the mob didn't like the, the idea that George Ratterman could win. He was drawing huge crowds to his rallies, and they got nervous. So a couple of mobsters affiliated with the, um, the real organizer, the, uh, the kingpin in Newport of the mob named Charles Lester. He was an attorney, but he was really the mob's attorney. They masterminded a frame-up where they uh, slipped chloral hydrate to George Radman and set him up in a bedroom with a stripper, took his clothes off, and then had the police arrest him. And they were going to have photographs taken, but the photographer didn't show up. <laughs> so George Ratterman is in the headlines, this re reformed sheriff that he's caught in a bedroom with this stripper named April Flowers. And uh, fortunately, George had his blood tested and they found high levels of uh, knockout drops, chloral hydrate. And the whole thing backfired on the mob. 
Well, now suddenly everybody knows this was a frame up. And it's almost, this is one of those stories that uh, defies fiction almost. So uh, what happens is Bobby Kennedy sees this headline about what's going on in Northern Kentucky. And he decides that's where he's going to go to war on organized crime. Hmm. He chose as his first battle against organized crime, Newport, Kentucky. And he sent a guy in there, Ron Goldfarb, Goldfarb, as an assistant U.S. attorney with a blank check to go prosecute the mob and defend George Ratterman and to try and put these guys in prison on civil rights violations for violating George Ratterman's civil rights, which was the federal law they could use to get their their oar in the water in this battle. And after these sensational trials, uh, they were uh, publicized all around the world. Uh, Newport was on the map everywhere, and everybody was following these trials because this was the mob versus Bobby Kennedy and a reform sheriff. You couldn't even write the script if you're working in Hollywood. And Ratterman finally prevailed. Kennedy finally, after multiple trials, put Lester and another mobster in prison. And uh, that was the beginning, what I could tell, of the battle, the vendetta, feud, whatever you want to call it, between the mob and the Kennedys, that I believe the research will show led to Jack Kennedy's assassination in Dallas. All because of Newport. (laughs) All because of Newport. In fact, um, my research, I obtained a lot of transcripts of illegal wiretaps that Bobby Kennedy did on mobsters. And what Bobby did is he put a, a wiretap into Mo Dallas's office in the uh, Desert Inn in Las Vegas, where he was running the casino. And these transcripts that I recovered from the Freedom of Information Act through the FBI show numerous conversations of mobsters talking about killing the Kennedys. And in some cases, they even go so far as to describe a sniper shooting Jack Kennedy in a southern city while he's riding in an open. It's pretty specific. And they also discuss why it was smart to kill Jack, because if they killed Bobby, Jack would come after them with everything he had. Whereas if they killed Jack, Bobby is now powerless. Bobby and J. Edgar Hoover never liked each other. And as soon as Jack was killed, J. Edgar Hoover bypassed the attorney general and went directly to Lyndon Johnson. But all of that aside, yes, I think the case is very good, very easy to make and strong that everything that happened to the Kennedys started in Newport. Wow. That's crazy. So those wiretaps, are those available to hear anywhere? Why, why isn't that uh, common knowledge or is it? Well, uh, when you make a freedom, freedom of information act request for the FBI's vault, you have to plug in keywords, and it's sort of like how working the combination on a safe. The right word will open the right file. The the transcripts that I obtained um, were probably just partial of the record because they pertain to certain keywords like Mo Dallas, uh, Desert Inn, Beverly Hills, uh, Rob, Bobby Kennedy, um, on and on. So they're not audio. The, the audio tapes may be available somewhere. I kind of doubt it, but I had the typed transcripts of the of the conversations, and there are hours and hours of them, and they uh, they can get very boring and tedious while they're talking about the price of tomatoes or some uh, couple that showed up in, from Iowa trying to wear shorts into the casino or something. But <laughs> but uh, it, it's fascinating when these guys finally start talking about the Kennedys and start talking about their business the skim, how they handle the skim and how much they take from, from the take. And in fact, it reveals that the, the mob, starting with Mo Dallas, they left um, Northern Kentucky because it got too hot when Bobby Kennedy came to town. When he started prosecuting for civil rights violations, Mo Dallas went out to Vegas and started the Desert Inn. Hmm. And so many people who were dealers and casino regulars in Cincinnati followed him out to Vegas that they used to call the flights leaving Cincinnati Airport syndicate airlines. <laughs> so everybody, you get on a plane, they, people still tell stories about getting on a plane in Cincinnati and they'd see three or four other people from the casinos uh, heading out to Vegas to take a job there with uh, Mo Dallas at the Desert Inn. So when Mo Dallas moved out to Vegas, 
they basically, they didn't have to buy Newport anymore. They bought a whole state. And some of their conversations involve what they're doing to extort and influence and intimidate and own the top elected officials in Nevada at the time. Wow. That's crazy. So well, how involved is the mob in Cincinnati, or is it just across the river in Kentucky? Because I grew up in Cleveland, even in the 70s when I was a kid, you get mobsters getting blown up like every other week. The mob was still pretty oh powerful gosh, you're right. into the late 70s. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Danny Green. I went into that in, in part of the book, that whole period of the 70s. It was more bombings in Cleveland than Belfast. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it is. It's, it's unbelievable that we've just kind of forgotten that chapter of history. But mobsters were being blown up almost every other week in Cleveland. Yeah. And it's really stunning. So you remember that clearly. The, the, the key thing for Cincinnati that's really interesting is it was kind of a symbiotic relationship. So Cincinnati police were really tough and super strong about keeping all of that corruption on the south side of the river. Because... They wanted Cincinnati to be clean, which makes sense. That's their job. But the the leaders of Cincinnati also had kind of a um, uh, inside joke. So what they do as far as the Chamber of Commerce is concerned, they boosted their convention business by bringing people to Cincinnati because we had what? Newport. Anything goes. I mean, it was so wild that the cab drivers would actually post uh, broth, the names of brothels in the window of their cab. And they were on commission to take convention visitors to those specific brothels in Northern Kentucky. And they would get a, a cut. So they would advertise the women, the prices, everything right there in their cabs while they picked up convention visitors in Cincinnati. And those are back in the days when convention visitors didn't bring their wives, hmm. they didn't bring their family. Uh, so a many a convention visitor experienced all the wild nights and uh, menu of uh, attractions in northern Kentucky. And that was sort of the way that uh, Cincinnati would lure conventions to Cincinnati and yet all at the same time tell everybody, no, it's a real clean city. So, and it was. That's wild. What about, uh, I mean, everybody knows, you know, Newport for being the home of the Tommy gun. You kind of mentioned the. Tommy Gunn earlier. Uh, any any fun stories about that? I mean, other than it was actually invented in the actual Southgate house, or how's the Southgate house lay claim to the Tommy Gun? Yes, it was General John Thompson who lived there. He okay. invented the Tommy Gun, named after him, the Thompson submachine gun. But I guess you could say it was made most famous in Cincinnati by a guy named Machine Gun Melvin. And he was a police officer in Cincinnati. And his stories are fantastic. He was one of the ways they kept the mob on the south side of the river. Uh, machine Gun Melvin was known for um, his machine gun, his Thompson. Uh, in one of the stories, there was a couple of guys who uh, perpetrated a burglary or a robbery of some kind. And they were holed up in the basement of a downtown building. And it, they wouldn't come out. So basically, Machine Gun Melvin just stuck his Thompson in the window and hosed down the inside. <laughs> and they didn't come out alive. Let's put it that way. In, in another incident, uh, he was uh, he heard about some mobsters in northern Kentucky that were coming to town, some hitman. And he um, published an uh, item in the newspaper saying that he would meet them in Newport at high noon. And he would have his machine gun and he dared them to show up. And they did not. But shootings were not uncommon in, in Newport. There were many shootings. There were. Uh, they also had a thing called the Newport Nightgown, which was they would take people that got out of line and wrap them in chains and throw them off the bridge, uh, the suspension bridge or whatever. Sometimes they would shoot them in the back of a car and load it on a barge and then push it into the river. So, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people that lost their lives during this period, most of them were gangsters because there are a lot of gang wars and turf battles. But Newport at the time had something like, my research showed six times the national average for homicides. And uh, that's only the ones that we knew about. Wow. It had uh, 
unbelievable prostitution. It was so many places of prostitution that uh, they had one street that was a day street and the other street that was a night street. Wow. At one time, a, a reporter uh, counted something like hundreds of prostitutes in one mile of a street in Newport. So uh, it was it was a wild town. Everything goes. And it gets less wild, I guess, after uh, they open the Desert Inn out there in Las Vegas, or is is there still a little bit of mob left here? Because I guess you're saying that the the big fire, the final fire, may be still mob-related, even though the mob is mostly gone? Yeah, good. Uh, thanks, BF, uh, getting us back on the timeline here. So when uh, Mo Dallas leaves for uh, the, t- the heat is too intense with Bobby Kennedy and all these people looking at his business and closing down their betting wire, closing up the casinos, uh, which did happen. Uh, George Ratterman personally closed a lot of casinos, and he was tough. Uh, so what happened is um, the big guys, like Mo Dallas and the Cleveland mob, went out to Vegas. But there were a lot of mobsters who stayed behind. And the one who was probably the, the scariest, uh, the biggest boss, was a guy named Screw Andrews. And Screw Andrews was a really bad dude. Uh, he bragged of killing many, many people. Um, they had an enforcer in Cincinnati, Red Masterson, who also bragged of, of killing more than 100 people. So uh, Screw Andrews stayed. What happened, though, is that with the casinos gone, in the late 60s and early 70s especially, uh, because of the Supreme Court rulings and so forth, Newport especially became Sin City in another way. It became a porn capital. There, the, the whole streets were just littered with topless clubs, bottomless clubs, nude dancers, Cinema X, triple X rated movies, on and on it went. And there was, a, there was a faction that fought, that actually had political backing that fought and gained public office and went back and forth between this faction known as the liberals versus the reformers. And the liberals said, this is the best business we can get. Uh, this is this is our business and this is what pays people. We get a lot of income from these topless bars. This is what draws people to Newport. The reformers said, no, we can do better than that. We don't need this. And they battled back and forth in Newport, fought valiantly uh, on the reform side and actually went to the Supreme Court a couple of times to win the right to push the uh, the topless and triple X movie theaters out of business. So so when the Beverly Hills then called Supper Club opens up, the mob is gone then or? Still there. Uh, Screw Andrews and his minions ran casinos still. They were just a little bit more under the radar. And uh, so what was happening then between the porn business, for example, to just get a handle on the corruption that was going on, the guy who ran the Cinema X Theater in Newport, when they finally closed it, police went in and took a look, and they found cameras behind the screen. And those cameras were taking pictures of all the people who came in to watch these triple X movies. And among the pictures that they had taken, they had the mayor, they had <laughs> the district, they had prosecutors, judges, they had all these people. Oh man. So you think those people weren't being extorted? <laughs> of course they were. And that was just, it just so symptomatic of what they called uh, Newport Eye, which is that all of the people in power were on the payroll or they were compromised by the mob in some way. And they always looked the other way for whatever the mob was doing. So at this time, the porn empire is going on, but there's also this this epidemic of nightclub and restaurant burnouts where uh, the Lookout House, uh, a slew of Galaxy Club, a whole bunch of restaurants and nightclubs are burned. And police say they're clearly arson. Accelerant is used. Uh, They said, but we can't prove it unless we catch somebody running from the scene of the crime with a can can of gas. Um, but there, uh, again and again, over a period of about five or six years, every year there was a huge fire in Northern Kentucky that involved a restaurant or a nightclub, and this was the mob again taking over businesses that they wanted. And in many cases, they said you could always tell when a club was going to be burned because the night before or that evening you'd see the owner uh, loading up all the liquor to take out of there because that's the most valuable stock. 
So if you saw somebody back up to the club loading <laughs> liquor out of this restaurant, it's going to burn. <laughs> and amid this backdrop of all these restaurant and nightclub fires, Dick Schilling, who owned the lookout house before it burned, um, he sells that and buys the Beverly Hills and remodels it and turns it into this fantastic destination. Well, while he's remodeling it, it burns. And while it was before it burned, the local uh, fire chief gets a call at 3 a.m. from somebody who says the Beverly Hills is going to burn. And the, the alarm came in like five minutes later. So they know there's a gas stick, a, a empty can of gas sitting in the middle of the place where it burned, the obvious accelerant, and nobody could identify where that can of gas came from. So it's clearly arson, and everybody admitted it's arson and, and knew it more or less. The state police, which were very less than uh, trustworthy at the time, <laughs> uh, kind of tried to brush it under the rug, but the local fire marshal and fire chief would have none of it. So while he's building at Dick Schilling's Club Burns, uh, he goes ahead and redoubles his efforts and builds this place out and to be fantastic. But over the years, again, he has bomb threats. He had a small fire again in the in the club that may or may not have been deliberate. Probably not. Might have been an accident. And then, of course, we're leading up to the fire in 77, which was the tragic fire that killed 165 people. So while the fire's leading up to it, though, is it the mob trying to take over the club again, or who's doing this? Well, um, I, I lay out as many of the facts as I could find, and I leave some of that to the reader's uh, judgment. But I do have um, extensive uh, interviews with people who were there, people who worked in the club before the fire. And they witnessed people that showed up in the club before the fire and were intimidating. They had a conversation. They overheard a conversation with the Shillings in which these guys basically said, uh, sell us the club or it might you might not have the club. You know, it's one of those, hey, it's a nice place you have. Yeah, you yeah. wouldn't want to lose it, right? <laughs> um, so that was the conversation that uh, one of the uh, waitresses there overheard. And she describes us in the book. And then uh, she was sure that these guys were affiliated with organized crime that they uh, were there to, to try and obtain the club from the shillings. Hmm. So at this time, though, the Beverly Hills Supper Club is a lot less gangstery than the Beverly Hills Country Club was, correct? It's more of a legit place. Yes, but I've heard from several people since I wrote the book that gambling was still going on there. Ah. That if you knew the right people and uh, tipped the right person at the door, you could go to a room upstairs where they had roulette and slot machines and all of the blackjack tables and so forth. So, yes, there was still gambling at the Beverly Hills, but it was nothing like the wide open casino that existed in the Pete Schmidt days and the mob days. So gambling was happening, but it was at this point, it was much more of an entertainment venue and it was very successful. For the shillings, they were doing very well with it. So we arrive at the, okay. the, uh, the construction itself of the building. I heard that like was old old wiring or like a lot of a lot of the fires were actually behind the walls, which is like I guess people didn't realize the extent of the fire and just kind of hung out in that room while it is basically too late because the you know fire was engulfing everything around them. Like what? Um, you kind of walk us through. What about the structure made it made it so uh, you know hard to hard to escape? Well, you, there's a couple of uh, parts to that question. It's a good question. The first is the construction of the Beverly Hills. Dick Schilling uh, certainly aggravated the, the deaths because he would just he ignored the architects. He would tear up their plans and draw his own. He ignored the fire inspectors and the zoning codes and everything else. And he just would kind of, anytime he had some extra cash, he'd start adding on another part of the club. So he closed exits that were required by his occupancy standards. He uh, basically just eliminated them from the plans. He made it much more difficult for people to get out. In some cases, uh, for example, several bodies after the water that uh, where there had been an exit sign hung over the door, but it was a closet. 
And so people who are desperately trying to get out of this burning building see these um, signs that say exit, they tumble into a closet and get stuck. He was totally irresponsible in the way he developed and built this place. So certainly there's that responsibility. As far as the second half of your question about wiring, that is uh, the common, um, I would say, conventional wisdom about the Supper Club is that it happened because of aluminum wiring. It was an accident. Well, I don't buy that for a minute. That was really uh, just the finding that was eventually obtained by a litigator who was trying to recover millions of dollars from the wiring companies, and he tried everything else to recover huge damages in this fire. And he finally settled on that. The first trial was uh, he lost. Uh, The second trial, after years of um, looking for a loophole to go back and get another bite at the apple, he finally found a court that would give him another chance and he did get a, a finding that it was aluminum wiring, but that was against all of the testimony in that case would lead you to believe otherwise. The experts said it was not aluminum wiring. Um, the people that I interviewed who saw the trial and, and followed it, um, it, it was basically a way for the uh, trial act trial lawyer to cash in in a big way. And the settlement that he got on that, the, the lawyer was Stan Chesley, the settlement that he got on it was cited often in battles later of tor- against uh, trial lawyers to try and win tort reform because it was so lopsided in favor of the lawyer and not the victims. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, I don't think it was aluminum wiring. I think the evidence is overwhelming that it was not. Um, there are fire marshals, there are fire experts, fire examiners, investigators who I quote in the book who really don't buy that theory at all. Uh, it looked to be much more likely that there was an accelerant used because of the speed that the fire took when it left the zebra room and went down the hall of mirrors into the cabaret room where most of the people died. So that's just one of the many, many um, pieces of evidence that that argues very strongly against uh, that, that being an accident and being wiring. We've got to be a the pretty awful person to do. Why not do it in the middle of the night, at least when the club is empty? I mean, on a, a Saturday night, Memorial Day weekend, <coughs> with a big-name entertainer in the showroom, I mean, that's just outrageous. And that's another thing. The place was packed so badly that Schilling ignored occupancy limits. He packed the tables so tight that people couldn't even get out to go to the restroom. Or, and they were packed in there like sardines. One of the waiter, uh, waitresses said that tables were so close you had to walk across a table to get somebody a drink or pass, pass it down. A lot of people said they walked into that place and looked at it and said, this is a death trap. I'm not going in there. But Schilling wanted the money, and he got it. He uh, packed that place out to the point where people really had no chance to get out once they uh, panicked. But um, it's just such a sad story of so many of these things conspiring against those poor people that were trapped. And their stories are just, oh, they're just horrible. Um, But as far as the the part you mentioned about why would you do it while the place was packed, there's a theory by many of the people who um, followed this for years that there was a timer set with an accelerant that was supposed to go off at 5 a.m. when the place would have been empty instead of 5 p.m. when people were packed in. Okay. okay. So if if that's the case, that they got the timer wrong, that kind of makes sense in a a twisted way. It it also makes sense because uh, the the way the fire started and came up from below the zebra room, uh, unfortunately, we'll never know for sure what's in that room or what was it because it was not treated as a crime scene. It was almost immediately bulldozed and covered up and to this day buried. Uh, and the, the pictures that the state police took down there were hidden from the public for years, like 20 years. And it took a lawsuit to even pry loose some of those photos. And by the time that happened, um, perhaps thousands of the photos or hundreds at least of those photos that were taken in that room were lost, lost quote mm. unquote, um, or destroyed. So the people that were appointed by the governor to investigate 
Um, out of uh, six or seven people, all but one were notoriously and egregiously corrupt. Uh, as we found out in some cases later, the governor himself, um, the people that uh, he appointed, were some of them had mob connections. It, it's just, it's appalling when you look at it in retrospect now, knowing what we know and what we can find out from the records. So what happened to Dan Schilling? Uh, Dick Schilling, Dick Schilling. Um, eventually became the king of casino gambling in the South, <laughs> which is interesting, too, because, back this up now, what was the motive? Why would the mob want that supper club, besides the fact that it's a really big deal? I mean, it's the showplace of the nation. Well, because in 1977, what we were seeing was a national campaign to uh, legalize casino gambling. And Schilling was already remodeling his club again with plans to build a hotel and perhaps a casino. So he was already looking ahead to how this could be turned into one of the greatest casinos in the Midwest. It would be a moneymaker, like unbelievable. It would probably, you know, be like one of the big clubs in Vegas. So with that political thing going on, that political context of this effort to legalize organized gambling, now picture yourself as somebody like Mo Dallas out in Vegas, and you've always uh, you have this place in your heart for the place where that Beverly Hills Club, where everything started for you and you learned everything. And hey, they, they would say this is if we're going to have a casino in the mid Midwest, that's perfect. So why not? If not him, somebody wanted that property in hopes of turning it into a casino. So Schilling actually did get his casinos that he wanted. It took him years, but he went down to the Mississippi and became the king of casinos down there. Um, and uh, so he, he got what he wanted, I guess you could say. Well, I guess the misset timer theory kind of fits in because, of course, after you know the, the fire that killed so many people, nothing has ever been built on that land. And to this day, that's a huge controversy about developing that land. Yes, it's finally being turned into um, mixed housing and uh, assisted living. And uh, apparently the people that are putting that in, uh, the developers, are going to have a memorial reserved for the 165 people who died there. Actually, that total is a little higher. It could be as high as 169 because three or four of the women that died were pregnant. So, but 165 is what we recognize. And so... I think at this point, after all these decades, it's it's probably time to let somebody develop the property as long as they make some kind of concession to the the families that lost uh, their family members there that night. Yeah, but I know it took years for them to even put the memorial up there that's there now that you can see from 471. That was a, an effort. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's been a kind of a little uh, worst kept secret that people have been going up there all these years. Uh, and I've been up a couple of times. There's uh, a makeshift memorial up there that existed uh, where one of the survivors, Wayne Dammert, who rescued 75 people during the night of the fire. Uh, Wayne went up there on his own, really, with very little help, maybe a few volunteers, and put up markers on trees that showed this was the cabaret room. This is where these. This is where people died, uh, and then he'd list the number and the location, and then he'd say, "This is the fountain room. This is the the Trianon room, and this is the the lobby, and so forth." So you could see where the club, the layout was, and it was really kind of um, fascinating and creepy to be up there because uh, with the the frost heave and so forth, little pieces of the supper club still keep coming up through the ground. Ooh. So you'd find shoes and Broken oh plates and, and glassware and the oddest things that would come up. And uh, the people that go up there regularly would collect them. And there were kitchen parts of kitchen uh, implements and so forth and all kinds of weird stuff. And that would be kind of collected around little tables. And uh, then there were also another topic entirely that I got into in the book was paranormal researchers. So, People who are quote unquote ghost hunters would go up there and, and uh, set up their equipment, and uh, they they say that they've had uh, unbelievable contacts with uh, 
spirit world. And uh, I, I quoted one of it, it uh, at length and her story. It's, it's fascinating. So that development is going through then with uh, the mixed, because I know they always say something, there's going to be a shopping center there back in the early aughts and that got completely scrapped because of the uproar. But so is this latest project going to go through then? As far as I know, yes, it's on track. Um, there was quite a battle over it and it has caused some very hard feelings among the survivors, people who worked at the supper club. Uh, so that some of them aren't speaking to each other anymore and they've kind of, uh, some because it divided people between should we or shouldn't, and uh, that's the way it goes. Yeah, I get the argument on both sides, but man, I couldn't. It, there have been a shopping center up there. Uh uh-uh. uh, <laughs> I couldn't go yeah, shop that's there. I read about that. Yeah. yeah, it's like, could you live in the murder house? That's always a big question I have. For we had uh, J.D. Townsend on, who did the book about the Bricker murders, and that house is occupied to this day. And I'm like. How could you live there? And the late there's a lady that lives up in the where the Easter Sunday massacre happened in what, Hamilton or was it Middletown, one of the two. And the lady says, "Yeah, she wow. goes down in the basement. You can still see the blood spatters and stuff like that." And she can people walk oh and knock on her gosh. door occasionally and say, "Do you know what happened here?" And she goes, "Yeah, I know what happened here." Yeah, I could not do it. <laughs> could not do it. Well, that was one of the arguments by the people opposed to the development, especially for assisted living was that there are some very malevolent spirits. This is their argument. I'm not endorsing it, but just saying that there are very malevolent spirits up there, and that's not a good place for the elderly who um, may be vulnerable. The way they painted it, it was a bit like uh, Poltergeist, if you recall the movie. (laughs) Yeah, it might get interesting here. (laughs) Didn't they... uh stage all the bodies in the local high school gym or something the fort thomas armory yes they did it became uh, a morgue kroger had to loan uh, refrigerated semis because they had no place to put people all these victims the coroner uh was so overwhelmed that after uh, the first autopsies he was unable to do autopsies enough so he just declared that everybody had died of smoke inhalation and we're not sure because in, in a fire like that, one of the things that uh, killed people was besides the flames, but there are massive amounts of toxic fumes and byproducts because a lot of the materials that Dick Schilling used were not, uh, didn't meet the basic safety standards. So there were all these plastics and, and strange byproducts and fumes floating around. So yes, smoke inhalation, uh, that was a kind way for the coroner to give families something to cling to, to believe that their loved ones didn't suffer the agonies of, uh, but there were it, the, the descriptions from people who tried to rescue bodies and, and the people who were still alive were trapped in these, these kind of log piles of humanity where the doors wouldn't open. And they went in there and tried to pull people out from the bottom of these piles and the weight was too great. And those poor people just, they were still alive. They were still uh, conscious and screaming for help and desperate to get out of there. And, uh, and at, at a certain point, there was nothing you could do. It's terrifying. Ugh. Man, so where can we get your book? Well, I think you guys need it right away. <laughs> I mean, you know a lot about this and you have some fascination. For sure. um, I'd be yeah. glad to sign them for you, which is what I do on my website. It's available at Amazon and all the local bookstores. But if you want the signed copy, which has full color inside, you can go to my website, which is chilidogpress.com. That's C-H-I-L-I-D-O-G-P-R-E-S-S.com. And just click on there, and uh, you can get a signed copy, and I'll be glad to put it in the mail for you. Awesome. That's great. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so... um, so, I mean, is there any effort to really get to the bottom of it? Or is everybody just, is it, is it considered a cold case right now? It's just like, well, it is what it is. A lot of people died and no one really yeah. knows why. Or, I mean, are we ever going to get a final answer? That's a great question. I, I said about doing this because I knew that a lot of these people who are still alive now are not going to be with us in, in another five or ten years. And we're going to lose these primary sources we won't have these first-person accounts anymore. So I gathered as many as I could reasonably put together for this book. 
And uh, will there ever be another investigation? I, I sort of doubt it. Uh, I think that the official version has been so effective uh, of a whitewash, of a cover-up. It's been kind of cast into this concrete now, and people just kind of uh, say, oh, well, it was an accident, or, oh, well, what could you do now? Um, but I wanted to make sure people would have a chance to, to see what what the facts are and make their own conclusions. It, it's it's really sad, uh, but it, it's just, it's, it's one of those mysteries. Somebody called it, one of the people I interviewed, called this the biggest cold case in U.S. history. Because where else will you find 165 people lost their lives in an arson murder, a hit that was 165 people for what? For to, to take over a club? I mean, it's just it's sad. It's tragic and. Well, let's see. I th- anything else there, P.F.? I, I, think, I think we've we've covered everything here. It, it's a fascinating story, like I said. And for folks who don't know, certainly look into it and certainly get. Peter's book. Um, I guess we have the one only last order of business we have. I'll let you do the honors, Darren, uh, for the coupon code. Yeah, we always ask our uh, guests at the end of the podcast to give us a word or phrase. Uh, this word or phrase will be turned into a coupon code for CincyShirts.com. Uh, it'll be good for uh, 20% off your order for our, our listeners. So it, it's all you. What would you like for the uh, this week's coupon code to be? Well, you already have a shirt, so let's go with Sleep Out Louie. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. All right, Sleep Out Louie. writing it down now. Okay, Sleep great. Super. Well, uh, we thank you, Peter, for joining us on such short notice. I just reached out to you this morning, and here we uh, knocked this out this afternoon. Yeah, that's and, awesome. Yeah, and so... Uh, My I'll let, pleasure. We'll let you know when this... Uh, it'll probably drop in uh, a week from Wednesday. And uh, yeah, we'll everyone go out and, and buy your book and you know find out more about this and... And uh, and hopefully folks will learn a lot. Well, we have no supply chain issues at Chili Dog Press, so it's a great Christmas gift. You oh, good. Mailed <laughs> almost immediately. Perfect. That's a great stocking stuffer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thanks, Peter. Good talking to you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You guys, uh, I'll sign one for you. Just get, get on my website and ask for one and or buy one, and I'll uh, sign it for PF and for Darren. Sounds oh. good. All right. Thanks, man. Take care, guys. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye bye. Thanks so much. Peter Bronson, interesting stuff, right? I, I knew the theory about the timer being set to start the fire uh, going off at 5 p.m. instead of 5 a.m. I do remember reading something about that, but for a long time, the accepted story was it was, uh, you know, poor wiring, uh, poor construction, and uh, no, uh, Peter has unearthed some other facts and findings in his book, so do check that out. Again, it's Forbidden Fruit, Sin Cities, Underworld, and The Supper Club, available wherever you get books. Obviously. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email us podcast at cincyshirts.com. Put podcast guest in the subject line and maybe give us a few sentences about why you think that person would be a good guest for the show. And if you haven't already, of course, go back and go through those Cincy Shirts podcast archives. Feel free to cherry pick, but you really want to listen to all of them at some point. They're all great. All kinds of great guests from Johnny Bench to Amy Asbeck, Eddie Fingers. Uh, we've uh, uh, all, just all kinds of folks we've had on from a variety of walks of life and and living their lives in Cincinnati and the tri-state. All good stuff. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They're from Philadelphia. And you can find their music in iTunes. Well, iTunes. I still use iTunes, yes. Apple Music, you can find it there too. Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music, you can find our friends from Philadelphia, Big Nothing. Find vintage tees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, and a whole lot more. We're close to 40 cities now at oldschoolshirts.com. Like Cincy Shirts, you get old sports teams, shopping malls, restaurants, TV personalities, radio stations, all that kind of stuff. Except, like I said, for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is Louie. Just Louie. 
Louis, not Sleep Out Louis, the uh, uh, restaurant or bar or club, whatever it was there down there on the river. Just Sleep Out Louis uh, after the gangster. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Or you can use it in our brick-and-mortar stores, of course, in Over the Rhine and Hyde Park. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.